like to dismiss the children that have pre-registered for children's worship. If you would make your way to your right toward Miss Amy there in the doorway, you can be dismissed to a time of children's worship. The rest of us, I want to encourage to please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20. This morning, I'm actually going to step back just a little bit and read verse 29 through verse 31. So John, chapter 20. As the children are making their way towards children's worship, this gives me the opportunity just to set the context a little bit. Reminds you that Jesus has just appeared a second time, eight days after his resurrection, to the disciples. Thomas is with them. Thomas had missed the first appearance. Thomas had made the statement that he would only believe that Jesus had risen from the dead if he was able to touch the nail-scarred hands and able to put his hand in the wound on Jesus' side. Jesus appears then. And even though he wasn't present when Thomas uttered those words, Jesus speaks to the doubts that plague Thomas. Thomas, here are my hands. Touch them. Here's my side. Put your hand in it. And Thomas makes this incredible profession of faith. My Lord and my God. And now we pick up with how Jesus responded to him. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, my prayer this morning echoes that of the prayer we just finished singing. Be our vision, O oh Lord. We confess that we are easily distracted and our eyes fall on things, things of this world. And these things that are temporary and don't really satisfy gain our attention and our focus. We confess that to you, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to work within us that our gaze would be fixed upon Jesus. That he would fill our vision. That we would recognize all the things of the world that we see and believe will bring satisfaction are merely like a fog that will dissipate. But Jesus is the sun that will shine throughout eternity. Let the brightness of his light fill our lives. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. As I begin this message, I would like to do so with a question. A very personal and pointed question. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? What would it take for you to become a full-fledged, devoted follower? Of Jesus. Would it take unassailable proof? 
Would you need to have some sort of supernatural experience? You may be like a gentleman by the name of Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray is an author. He's a man who has turned his back on his faith. At one time he was a very committed Christian, but since then he has renounced faith not only in Jesus, but in God. He is a very vocal atheist and humanist. While appearing on a talk show led by Justin Brierley, Murray was asked, what would it take for you to return to your faith? Murray answered by saying, I would need to hear a voice. Briarly pushed him a little bit. You mean you would need to hear an audible voice from heaven telling you to believe? And Douglas Murray said, that's exactly right. I mean it literally. You may be like Murray. You may be thinking, I'll believe when I see the supernatural, when I experience something that is beyond this world, when I experience a miracle, will hear me clearly. These Gospels are written so that you will believe. Your belief does not have to rest upon anything more than what God has already done in Jesus Christ. These Gospels are written so that you may come to faith. In fact, this first epilogue that we've read here, because there are two conclusions to the Gospel of John, this first one in verses 30 and 31 actually bring to an end what's known as the book of signs. The previous chapters, John has focused upon seven signs, seven things that Jesus did to show that he was the Messiah. The greatest of these signs was the resurrection. And now he is saying, as he has said here, you really don't need any other signs than what he has done. He's very clear, these things are written so that you might believe. And that in believing, you might be blessed. Look at what Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29. Thomas got the empirical evidence that he wanted. However, Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? And then he utters, Jesus utters a beatitude. We're used to the beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But Jesus here utters another one. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. It's very interesting. How do you believe without seeing? You look at the written testimony. You look at what the eyewitnesses recorded. You look at the historical documents. And Jesus is clear that those who believe without seeing any sign, without seeing any miracle, are blessed. Now, understand that Jesus is not creating two different classes of believers. He's not saying you have those who walked with Jesus who believed, those who experienced a post-resurrection of Jesus and believed that they are somehow inferior to those who believe without seeing. To the contrary, Jesus is stating that there is no superior status. He's saying even those who believe without seeing are blessed. See, think of how enamored we become with any brush anyone we know has with celebrity. If you're fell into that trap of like, you know, I have got a second cousin who has a best friend who ate lunch at the same restaurant with Jason Witten. And you're like, no, get out of here. Yes. Isn't that incredible? 
Can you imagine how it was for them to meet somebody who actually saw Jesus? To have been one of the 500 that Jesus went to, it's like, man, I've got a best friend whose third cousin was there. And it's like, wow. Jesus says you don't have to be in all of that. Jesus makes the point that those who believe because they saw Jesus, they are blessed. And those who believe even when they did not see Jesus are blessed because every believer is saved in the same way. And that is by grace. They're not superior because they saw him. Every believer is blessed because why? They have access to the very throne of God equally. We are equally blessed because every believer can echo the cry of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And this applies to those who saw signs and those who have not seen any signs. Remember, a sign was a miraculous work done by Jesus to point to the truth of who he is. The signs were not the goal They were simply a means to the goal. The signs were given so that we would recognize who Jesus is. Often we stop at the signs. We want the miracle and we see Jesus as a means to get that. The miracles, the signs, all pointed to Jesus just like the scripture does. When Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing and these are written so that you might believe, he is saying that the Bible is sufficient to bring you to faith in Christ. You really don't need anything else. The Bible is sufficient to bring us to joy in Jesus. The Bible is sufficient to equip us for life, for living for Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, Jesus told a story of two men. One was well-to-do, Very well off financially. The other was a beggar by the name of Lazarus who sat at the door begging for scraps. As it happened, both men died. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. He's in the presence of God, enjoying the bliss that comes from a relationship with God. And the rich man, the rich man is in hell. Now, I don't understand the the geography completely, but what that passage teaches us is that in hell, this man is able to look up and see the joy of those who are with the Lord. And seeing that joy, he says, please send Lazarus just with a a little bit of water on his finger to to, to part, to, 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 to soothe my parched tongue. Abraham says, there's a great gulf fixed. He cannot come to where you are and you cannot come here. Apparently in hell you have memories of the past. Memories of those who are still living. Because this rich man says, please, I've got brothers. I don't want them to end up here. Please send somebody to tell them. Send somebody. Because if somebody comes from the dead, surely they will believe. Hear the words of Abraham when he said to this rich man, no. They have Moses and the prophets Even if somebody came from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Understand, he's saying the scripture is sufficient. So if you are today seeking a sign, I would encourage you, look in the Gospels. Read them. Look at the Word. It is truth and it will guide you to know who Jesus is and bring life. And believer, 
I encourage you, keep in the word for it is sufficient for the struggles you will face in life. Here we come to know God. We come to drink deeply of who he is to find courage and strength and faith for the day. Understand, that's why we can say our faith is not built upon signs or circumstances. If we build our faith on signs or circumstances, that means if the sign does not occur, our faith will be shaken. Or if circumstances change, then our faith might be shaken. Our faith stands upon God and His Word, which is unshakable. We will have a faith then if we base it upon the Scripture, and we're in the Scripture like the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when they were told, if you will bow down and worship the king, you will be saved. But if not, you'll be thrown in the fiery furnace. What was their response? We will not bow down. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Whether God delivers or he doesn't, whether God gives a sign or not, God is still God and we know him in his word. And his word leads us to make this confession. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. That's what this brings us to make. Now notice in verse 31 where it says, these are written so that you might believe. Belief is not nebulous. This isn't some just feeling. It's not some kind of like ethereal belief. Well, I just believe. Notice there's a firm objective content. We are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, these are given together, and I want to take a look at what these two descriptions of Jesus mean because this is what we're being led to believe, what we're being led to confess. So it's important we know what the Scripture is leading us toward believing about Jesus. Now, notice the first phrase, that he is the Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title given to him, a description of a role that he has. The word Christ also means Messiah, which literally means anointed one. Now the idea of anointed one comes from the Old Testament. The idea of anointing dealt with being set apart, usually being set apart as symbolized by having oil poured on your head as a means of saying you have been blessed by God and set aside for this purpose, for a single purpose. And there are three offices that were anointed in the Old Testament. Kings were anointed. They were set apart that they might be the leader who was to be an example of what it looked like to walk with God. That's why the kings, according to the the Old Testament, were to have their very own personal copy of the Torah. The idea was that as mom and dad, you were teaching your children what it meant to live for Yahweh. You could look at the king and say, that's what it looks like. Be like King David. Be like him. But that didn't always work out too well, did it? The next group that was anointed were the priests. The priests were set apart to represent the people before God. Priests offered sacrifices, made intercession for the people. Anointed for that purpose so that when the people needed someone to intercede for them, the priest was there in that role. There's also a group that represented God to the people. The prophets. Prophets would be anointed. They would be set apart to represent God to the people. How? By speaking the truth of God to the people. So this idea of anointed one carries with it the idea of king, priest, and prophet. And Jesus fulfills each of those roles. He is the king of kings. 
He is the high priest who represents us before God. He is the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that came speaking the truth of God, not only speaking the truth of God, but was the very embodiment of God, the Word of God. Notice the phrase that is set next to that, the Son of God. That's a, a phrase that's been highly debated and highly controversial. In fact, when you speak to others of different religions, for those of the Islamic faith, for example, they will tell you they can't believe Jesus is the Son of God because that implies that God had relations with Mary. We have to understand what this means to say Jesus is the Son of God if we are to be able to answer that accusation against the faith as well as understand the Scripture. Now this begins with understanding that son of does not always refer to biological descent. Now yes, Jesus is fully God completely and we'll get to that in a moment. But the phrase son of is used in the Old Testament to express identity. For example, in the Old Testament there are some men that were apparently mighty men. They were strong. They had membership at the gyms. They were muscular, strong. And instead of just saying they were strong men, they are described as sons of might or sons of strength. It's a way of describing them as saying one of their prime characteristics is this, they are strong. Now this same idea is found in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You know what that's saying is that by faith, you and I are sons of Abraham. Now, does that mean that all of a sudden our genetic structure has changed, that we are descendants from Abraham biologically? No. Abraham was marked by faith. That's the point of Genesis. That's the point made in Galatians that Abraham, and in Romans, Abraham was saved by faith. When you walk in faith, you are a son of Abraham. Why? Because you are modeling the faith that Abraham had. So this phrase, son of God, refers to identity. By the way, did you know that as believers, we are known as sons of God? Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Now, this is in no way leaving out women or being misogynistic. What it's saying is that all of us are sons in the sense that sons were given the priority share in this culture. We all share in being sons of God. Why? Because a son of God represents the character of God. And what is the character of God? Peacemaker. Another instance where we're called sons of God. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When we show the character of God in being good to the ungrateful, loving our enemies, guess what? We are called sons of the Most High. This continues in Romans 8.15. We receive a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But let me be clear. Even though we may be sons of God by adoption, sons of God by character through the Holy Spirit, we are not a son of God like Jesus. The scripture is clear that Jesus is unique in his sonship. In fact, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the what? Only son from the father. That word only is the Greek word monogenes. It means unique, only, only begotten, none like him. 
We may be sons of God, but not like Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the full being of God. Jesus is the full character of God. In fact, John 3.16 reminds us of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only son, his only unique son. There is no son like Jesus who is the son of God, period. In a way, we will never be. Fully God and fully man. Now, when you combine these two titles, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you get this combination that's like mixing vinegar and baking soda. If you're wondering what happens there, just ask any 8th grade science student. It explodes. You get this boom because now we begin to understand more of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, it is connected to a promise that God made to David. He said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Then he goes on to say, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now the immediate context, he's talking about Solomon. You even see this here. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. However, there's a little clue here. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That means there's got to be something more going on here because if David's line was left to live on their own, it would not last forever. So what we begin to see is this promise being expanded. Isaiah 9 is a passage we typically only read at Christmas. But look at what's described here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the language of kingship. If the government's on his shoulders, that means he's leading it. He's the king. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. It's eternal, lasting on and on and on and on. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there is a coming king who's going to be reigning in justice and righteousness and in truth, whose kingdom will last forever. But then it's expanded a bit more in the Psalms. The kings of the earth gathered themselves together to take counsel against the Lord and against his, what's the word? Anointed. His Messiah. Who is this Messiah? I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So what this does now, we start to merge the two ideas kingship with being fully God so who is Jesus he is the Messiah who has come to establish the rule of God upon this earth through his being and his existence as God in the flesh now that's something that we desire think about how much politics often dominates our thinking where we think this leader is the one that will set things right or this leader will bring things in. We must understand there is no earthly leader, no politician, no elected official that can establish what we long for. Only Jesus can, for he alone, alone is the Messiah. And this longing is something that is within each and every human being. Think about some of the great works of literature that reflect upon this theme of the king who will come. J.R.R. Tolkien, in the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, what's the title of it? The Return of the King. 
One of my favorite childhood books was written by a man named Lloyd Alexander. The final book is called The High King, dealing with a king who sets things right. T.S. White, in his book, The Once and Future King, deals with Arthurian legend, this longing that we have for a king who will come and lead us. See, our hope is not found in humanity to establish the justice that we long for. We as Christians want to point to that and be outpost of it, but Jesus is the one who brings it. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, when he sat down in the synagogue in Nazareth and he took the scroll and he began reading, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me that I might proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Then Jesus sits down and he says, Today these things are fulfilled in your sight. You know what he was saying? The king has come. The Messiah is here. And what a king he is. There is no king like the king of kings. Think about who Jesus is. Our king was born in a stable and buried in a borrowed tomb. Our king gave life to the dead and rose from the dead himself. Our king confronted those who abused power and was compassionate to the powerless. Our king weeps with the wounded. Our king restores the broken. Our king gives grace to the guilty and hope to the hurting. Our king feeds the hungry and prepares there's a future feast for us that's beyond imagination. That is our king and what we confess when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in that confession is life. Notice what he says at the end of verse 31. By believing, by having faith in his name, you may have life. Now his name is his character. It's saying as I believe in who Jesus is, I have life. Now the very fact we are told we need life means right now we don't have it. Our hearts may be beating, but that doesn't mean we're really living. Our lungs may be expanding with oxygen, but that doesn't really mean that we're living. In fact, the scripture says that we are dead people walking. True life is found in the Lord. True joy is found in Him. It is living in restored relationship with God. It is being born again. It is living as He intended. And that is the life that is fulfilling. Last year, I came across an interview with a German golfer by the name of Bernhard Longer. Some of you know that name. Many of you don't. But I would encourage you to look up his testimony. One, it's amazing. He's in his 60s now and he's playing golf like you wouldn't believe. 1985, he won his first Masters golf tournament. Achieved fame, fortune, prestige like you wouldn't believe. The next week he showed up at Hilton Head to play in a tournament. And as I was listening to his interview, he said, I was never as empty as I was that week. He said, I had everything. I mean, think about that. Everything that we are told will give you satisfaction, wealth, prestige, fame, he had he said, I was miserable. He said, a friend of mine had been inviting me to a Bible study that they do on the tour. So he said, that Sunday morning I went to it. And they started talking about being saved by grace apart from works. He said, now, I'd had a little, little bit of Catholicism in my life, but I had never read that. So he said, I, I got a copy of the Bible and I began reading that and I read it. And that's what it says. Saved by grace apart from works. Bernhard Longer said that over the next few months, he began investigating Christianity 
been going to Bible studies, began having conversations until eventually he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what caught my attention. He was being interviewed by a man named David Faraday, who is, to my knowledge, no claim of being a Christian. And he asked Longer, what keeps you rooted? What keeps you stable in life? And Longer said, it is my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see, I'm kind of like you. When I hear a celebrity talk about, you know, I thank God for giving me this win. I'm like, okay, okay. But when somebody uses language like the Lord Jesus Christ, that gets my attention. He found life here. Not in the things of this world. That's the choice that's before us today. We're all looking for satisfaction. We're looking for life. We're looking for joy. The question is, where are you going to find it? The things of this world that will fade? Or in Jesus? These things are written so that you will confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in his name, have life. Now I know during this time of the pandemic, we are not doing an invitation like we normally do. But this morning I ask you, if you have never made that confession, to consider the words of the gospel. When we finish today and after I've said, read the final passage of scripture... I'll be available, Nathan will be available, Chris will be available to talk with you. We'll be around here at the front or at one of the doors. And I believe if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, He's not going to let you walk out of this building without asking more about what it means to follow Jesus. Some of you placed your faith in Christ years ago. You believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. But the reality is, your faith, your passion, is not what it was. This may be the day you need to come back to the reality of who Jesus is. The Messiah. The Son of God. The one that deep down you are longing for. Let this be the day to return to that first love. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for giving us written eyewitness testimony. And thank you for your grace that is given to us that we might know that even though we may not see the signs, we have not seen Jesus physically yet, our faith is equally as valid. We are equally as blessed. So Father, cut through all the things that would numb us to your reality. Break down the barriers, the lies that we build in thinking of what would truly bring satisfaction and bring us back face to face with Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, our Redeemer. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, church.